ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Walk Show podcast where we explore the walk of life. This is your host, Walker Near. As always, the music for the show is provided by Misha Zarin, so thank you so much, Misha. This week we are joined by Rich Farrell, who recently published his book, The Falling Woman, which is a fiction book about a woman who survives falling out of an airplane, which it turns out is a real thing that has actually happened, <laughs> uh, and an investigator trying to learn her story. Uh, Rich also teaches creative writing at a college in his local area. Rich is a, a thoughtful and warm person and shares his insights into writing from a variety of angles. We discuss reading habits, the benefits of writing, and the immense amount of failure that an author must overcome. Rich offers wisdom that can be applied outside of writing to life in general, and I was really delighted to have a chance to have a conversation with him. You can find The Falling Woman at a local bookstore or wherever else you may buy books. Without further ado, let's get on to the conversation with Rich. Welcome to the Walk Show podcast, Richard Farrell. Thank you so much for joining. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you are a, a, among other things, a writer, mm-hmm. um, an author, uh, who just recently, I believe, recently, right, released yeah. a new book, yeah, a falling woman. Is that correct? The falling, the, the falling. falling. Uh, I apologize. That's, no, I apologize. that's okay. That's okay. Um, but yeah, so so when did the, when did the book come out? The book came out June twenty third, so it's uh, two weeks ago today. Oh wow! The absolute worst time for a book to come out in the <laughs> history, probably not the history, but certainly top five in the history of book launch uh, times. Really? So it's because of the history. pandemic? Yeah. Well, the bookstores are all closed, and oh and, right, and and so you know the, the 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 industry doesn't really know what it's doing, and so it's a very strange time. Um, so the normal channels of how they publicize and market books have all kind of gone crazy. And so, yeah, it's been a little I, strange. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I just was, of course, only thinking through my own lens, which is I buy everything on a Kindle now. So mm-hmm. in my mind, it's like, mm-hmm. who needs a bookstore? But mm-hmm. it turns out I'm not the majority. So <laughs> I, I hope you're right. I mean, it'd be great if you were correct. I would have no problem with that. So. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So um, I, I definitely want to talk about the book. Um but I also kind of want to get to to know you a little bit and, sure. and introduce you to the audience. So, um, how long? Well, I, I guess I'll, before that, you're also a a professor, correct? And teach write creative writing. Professor is a very loaded word, but yes, okay. I, I'm, okay. A, I'm a teacher. Okay. Ad, I'm a lowly adjunct at a community college in San Diego. Okay. Yeah, no, I teach I teach creative writing. I I I, I um well. It's a second career for me. I, I got into writing um, later in life, in my, my late 30s, um, and I did a low-residency MFA program and um, basically came back from that and had to convince my family that I didn't want to go back to work and I wanted to try and write full-time. Uh, and so the teaching sort of filled in some of that gap. You know, the, the, mm. the teaching allowed me to you don't make much money as a writer, despite what people think. Um, <laughs> sure. The, te- the teaching is what paid the bills and allowed me to fund my conferences and, 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 you know, sort of keep, keep some kind of income coming in. Um, uh, but it's also good, you know, as a writer, when you teach writing, when you teach creative writing, it makes you think about your own process. So that has been kind of a, a nice side effect of, of teaching, of teaching writing. Yeah. Well, so that it's, I mean, you kind of answered the question, but I, I, one of the things I wanted to ask you, because 
so our mutual friend is, is Chris Crabtree, right. who I've had on the show before um, to talk Terrific, about his a terrific writer too, by the way. Terrific, yeah, great writer, great well, guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'll make sure he listens to this one so he can hear himself. He better. <laughs> he better listen. That's right. Um, but, but you know, I, uh, I've known him for, I mean, since we were little bitty kids, and he certainly did not think of himself as a writer mm-hmm. for a very long time and yeah. certainly not a poetry writer. Yeah. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I remember when we were 18, he was in a bookstore and saw a girl that he thought was cute <laughs> in the poetry <laughs> aisle. And so he like went over and like right. grabbed, I think like a Robert Frost book. Right. Cause that's the only poet he'd ever right. heard of. Right. And was like right. trying to act, right. but he doesn't know anything. And then fast right. forward 10 years and right. he's published. Um, yeah. But so, so you said that you kind of started in your late thirties, but so, Clearly, you didn't always think of yourself as a writer, or did you? And it was just something you hadn't really pursued. No. So I, when I was young, when I was a teenager, when I was a kid, I, um, I wanted to be a Navy pilot. That was my life, like lifelong dream. Um, and so it was sort of my first abiding passion was was flying. Uh, and in high school, I became a private pilot, and um, I ended up going to the U.S. Naval Academy, and then got into Navy's flight school, and I was pursuing that path pretty vigorously when I was young, and. Um, about halfway through flight school, I had an epileptic seizure in the airplane, and that very abruptly ended my flying career. Like it just that was the end of it. Like it was yeah. like twenty three years old, and that first that first path was cut off. You know, um, and and the only thing I can say about writing was in in even when I was in flight school, I started to become sort of a voracious reader. And I had never been a voracious. I was never really a big reader. I, I mean, was a history major in college, you know, and barely passed college. But um, <laughs> but I started to become kind of a big reader. And so there was this little tiny flicker of a flame that said, there's something there that you need to pursue, but it was so quiet and it was so subtle. And it was just this little thing in the background for, for, for more than a decade where I just, I was trying to convince myself that there was something I wanted to do. Um, but no, it was not a natural thing for me to become a writer. I still, yeah. I don't, I don't use the W word. I don't, I don't, I don't use that word. At all. Oh, I'm, well, I'm so sorry. That no, I'm, that's okay. I wish you prefer. I refer to you. No, uh, <laughs> I had a friend who, who uh, we were discussing this once and we came up with this great term and it's uh, it's in a whipwa. Mm-hmm. Okay. A whipwa is one who participates in writing activities. <laughs> and so that's a term I am okay. I'm comfortable with a whipwa. Right. Right. Um, even right. That, even if I have a book, I still, I'm like, eh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Here you are a published author. I just right. saw your book on Amazon yeah. and uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm still not sure what I'm doing. So no, I, I, I mean, it's not the same really, but it's kind of, you know, when I was a kid, I played, you know, basketball through high school and stuff, right. I'm six, four. So oh. that's a natural thing, but I'm not actually any good. So I will always say that I didn't play basketball as much as I was on the team. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. there's a distinction there <laughs> mm-hmm. where I was on the bench a lot, but I was on the team and did travel and, and those sorts of things. So I can understand the uh, the hesitancy there. Um, so, well, so you'd mentioned writing and, and that's something, or excuse me, reading a lot. And, and that's something that I kind of um, came to learn through watching Chris Crabtree go through that process mm-hmm. was this idea that, you know, which makes sense, but that in order to really be, um, to sharpen your, your sword, if you will, in writing that you've got to read a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got to expose yourself to that mm-hmm. a lot. Mm-hmm. So how much do you find, find yourself reading? And I'm, you know, these days or when you started? Or yeah, you- no, it's a great question. I, I, I think, um, when I was sort of in that floundering period after I left the military and was not sure what I was gonna do with the rest of my life, um, reading was this kind of really sacred time. 
Mm. Uh, I would get up at five. I used to, I, so for a while I taught high school uh, before that I was working like in, in defense industry, which was awful. Um, but I would get up super early and go find a place to read. So reading became like this sort of, you know, this sacred hour in the day where I could just be quiet and read. And, and that's what sort of inspired it. Um, when I got into this MFA program that I went to in my 30s, um, one of the great gifts of it was that we just were just inundated with books to read and stories to read. And so mm. it was just like a water faucet coming, you know, you just kept reading and reading and reading. Um, and that certainly changed the, what I read and how I read. Um, but yeah, I think that it's a you know, it's silly. What's that old silly uh, PSA reading is fundamental, you know, You're right. <laughs> right. Riff, but, but for writers, it is, it, it, it's, it's a big part of, um, a big part of the creative process is what are you reading? How are you reading? And, and uh, whenever I bog down, whenever I'm not writing or I'm stuck, I, I find that I have to get back to reading first. That's, that's the entryway into mm. the writing process. So if you've got writer's block, reading is how you can that's how I break it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's the only way I've been able to do it. I mean, it makes sense because you're exposing yourself not only to new ideas, but also just to, to other writing styles and other yeah. ways of communicating. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a reminder. It reminds you of, of what what stories are, and, you know, and what and what you're trying to accomplish when you sit down to write it. It's it's a way of reconnecting with like the, it's like the fundamental thing you're connecting to, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, it, it's the, it's the it's the it's the very foundational level of what you're trying to do. So you know, the the falling woman is a the book that you've just, mm -hmm. just published is a um, a a fiction book, mm -hmm. uh, but not. I mean. And I have, I will just be frank. I have not read the book, but I have read the the synopsis. Or yeah, the, yeah, sure. Um, so I, 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 a, I don't mean to, to jump too far ahead, having not read it yet. But it, it seems like there could be some fantastical elements to it. But it's a pretty grounded story. Yeah. I mean, it's not, yeah. it's not science fiction or no. something, right? No, it's not. Yep, yeah. right. So how do you, when you read, do you find yourself reading things that are more similar to your writing? Or do you find yourself reading all sorts of sci-fi, fantasy, nonfiction? Or, or is it more focused on something more comparable to, to where you're at? Does that make sense? Even? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, no, I, I, I'm probably a bad reader in a lot of ways. I, I tend to read, you know, the stuff that I like it tends to be yeah. pretty grounded, you know, literary type of fiction. Um, mm. You know, it's funny because... I because I teach a lot of writing students, I find their reading habits are much different than mine. Mm. And so often what I'm trying to do is pull them into mine and they're trying to pull me into theirs. Um, right. But I think good stories are good stories. And I think it doesn't matter, you know, how we read uh, or who we read. It's it just a matter of trying to understand. So I'll just share an example with you. I, I'm, I'm working on my syllabus for the fall. We're going online. My college is online all this fall. So I'm trying to throw everything onto the online syllabus. And um. Mm -hmm. And I've always had this fantasy. It's a fantasy. I'm going to share my first confessional moment. Okay. I've always had this fantasy that if I could learn how to do one good magic trick, if I could just have one magic trick I could do, that's mm -hmm. how I would open every class I teach. I would open with a magic trick, right? Yeah. I can't. I don't know. I mean, someday I will do it, but I haven't done it yet, right? Right. But when I'm on an online environment, I said, well, I can post a, a you know, magician's video to start the class. So I found this incredible video of you know, David Blaine, the magician. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Kind of crazy. Right. So he, I have this video and I'm like, so I, I showed it to my students that put it on, on, on our, our, our syllabus. And I said, so, you know, if you imagine yourself going to magic magician school, you know, and, and you can be mesmerized and you can be wowed by what he does. But, but if you want to become a magician, the question is, 
how does he do it? Right. And, you know, that's never going to be revealed to the public. But as a writer, it's the same kind of thing. Like if you read a book and you're blown away by it, be blown away, be impressed by it. But then if you want to be a writer, you have to ask yourself, well, how did they do it? You know, how do you break down the elements of storytelling of, 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 of stories so that you can perform a trick too? Because it is sort of a magic trick, you know, what good stories do. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, um, I am a layman entirely, to be clear. But um, so I don't, there's probably terms for this that I don't know, but I read this series of books. Um, it's a trilogy called the Mistborn series, or Mistborn trilogy. That's by this author, Brandon Sanderson, and it's it's a fantasy series. And so it introduces um, its own magic system and, and you know these kind of complicated ideas. But a, a thing that it did that I that I really appreciated, and I'm not a super. It's not like I've read all the fantasy books or something. So maybe this is more common than I think. But something that he did that I didn't feel like I'd seen before that much is. He doesn't explain the the stuff at all. He just shows you the world and right. how it's working. Right. And then as the story goes, you right. you learn how all this works. Right. But it's yeah. not like, you know, it's not some long-winded explanation and then a demonstration. Right. It's a demonstration yeah. first. Well, that's and it. I just, yeah. yeah, I thought that was a really fascinating thing that's maybe kind of an idea of what you're talking about. Of like, yeah. You might not think of that as part of the writing, but it very much is a oh, absolutely. decision, you know? Yeah, it's a huge part of it, and it's a hard part to teach because what I find with a lot of, especially people, for some reason, it's, it's people in particular who do fantasy or who do, you know, sci-fi because they have these thoughts going in their head, and, of course, they're working them out as writers. They're, they're processing all this, you know? Because mm -hmm. it is fascinating, right? But then they have to decide, well, how, how do I relate it to the reader? And what the reader doesn't want is they don't want a technical explanation. They just want what you just described. They just yeah. want to be mesmerized by it, you know? And so Stephen King has this great theory. He calls it the iceberg theory. Mm. The writer is responsible for 90% of the work the reader will never see. And the reader only sees the top 10%, you know, the stuff that makes you kind of get enamored by by the story. And, 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 and for me, as a student, as a student of writing, because I didn't come to writing with much background that was a sort of radical shift that happened that, oh these are tricks these are devices these are patterns these are these are things that that writers know and they're doing this consciously it's not like the muse you know lightning bolts from on high that you become yeah. it's there's 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 things that writers do just like there are things that magicians do or athletes do or you know uh podcast hosts do that, 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 that no it's true like everything sure. has patterns to it so we're just you have to become familiar with the patterns and see how they work to, to tell stories. Yeah, kind of kind of adding things to your toolkit, if you will. Absolutely. That's how I describe it, yeah. talked about you know your reading process to some extent but what about your writing process do you write daily do you do like the morning pages thing or what, what's that look like uh, I, i'm 
fairly disciplined. In fact, um, when I was in grad school, the worst insult I ever got became the best compliment I ever got. My first semester in grad school, I had a professor, and and this is actually an interesting story. I'm going to answer your question, and if I don't, you can call no. me on it, make me come back to it. But <laughs> when I got my first my first semester um, report card, if you will, he 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 said I had a trenchant work ethic, and I was very very insulted by that because I thought <laughs> that he was saying I sucked as a writer, but that I worked hard. You know, right? It's like you like kissing your cousin. <laughs> um, and, and I, I realized like later on, like that actually was a compliment because I was willing to work and I was willing to learn. Um, and I was willing yeah. to suck. I was willing to be really bad. I mean, um, and, and I just kind of kept, kept going. I had, a, I had a mentor in grad school who said to me, uh, you know, that when we finished, when you graduate, she said, you know, you go home, you graduated, you have a day off and then the next day you go back to write. And, and so for me, I was, I was fairly disciplined. I mean, I, I pretty much write every day. If I don't, there's a reason I'm not writing. Usually uh, I'm, I'm kind of like almost geeky about it. Um, if I go a few days without writing, I get grumpy. Most of what I write is just absolute garbage, just utter garbage, you know, which is normal, which is just what what you have to do. It's like, um, it's just practice. It's a form of practice. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I That was another thing that I was kind of, that's why I mentioned like the morning pages, which is this yeah. idea that you wake up and just free write. Yeah. Um, that was something that I also was introduced to through Crabtree. Yeah. Um, but that again, I, you know, I, I'm probably just not the sharpest tool in the shed, but it's all, it's constantly fascinating to me how much nuance and detail there are just in all things. I mean, I had yeah. a guy on the show a few weeks ago that was, he worked as a city planner for 12 years. Oh, I was talking yeah. about yeah. city administration. And it's like, I mean, when I hear it said out loud, it's like, well, yeah, that makes sense that there's all this detail, but I'd never considered right. it. You know what I mean? Right. So <laughs> Sure. Absolutely. No, absolutely. You pull back the curtain. It's just crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So there's this idea, there's this idea, it comes up a lot in writing, you know, in, in some of the better writing teachers talk about this is the idea of radical attention hmm. that what, what people who are good at their jobs do is they pay really close attention to the details, whether it's a city planner or whether it's a podcaster or whether it's a writer or a musician, they're paying really careful attention to the details. Um, I always think about like musicians when I, you know, I love music. I, I've never played an instrument in my life. When you go to a concert or you, you see someone playing live and, and, and they hear things like, oh, this is so good. And they're going, no, this is like this feedback. There's this. And they're in they're in a different headspace than I yeah. am as an audience member who just enjoys the music. Um, and it's the same thing for writers. And, 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 and at least as a teacher, that's a hard that's a hard nut to crack for writing students because they don't see how technical and how precise and how, you know, and, and the, it's not sexy. It's the work that goes into into making something um, you know, a, a good piece of writing is, it's really a technical thing sometimes. So, yeah, well, that's something that, you know, I, I think that, um, everyone, you know, everyone, not, I mean, there are, obviously there are some people who are just illiterate, but generally everyone writes at least in the most literal sense of the meaning. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, they can write down mm -hmm. their name or whatever. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, so I think that there's kind of a conception and you kind of spoke to it already, but like, that writers are people who are hit by these lightning bolts of creativity mm -hmm. or that um, there's the cliche of like, it's the novel that was, everyone has a novel in their right. head. They just have yeah. to get it out or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, maybe there's some, some truth to that. I don't know, but I think that it definitely belies the amount of work and the technicality that goes into, to all of it. Um, it's yeah, it, it's very much a, it's very much a hard skill, right? Like people yeah. think it's just yeah. kind of, I don't know, loft, not lofty, but 
nebulous yeah. thing that you yeah. can just, you know, you kind of get it or you don't. It's like, no, I mean, comparing it to music, I think is a great example. I mean, no one, I don't think anyone thinks that you learn to play guitar by <laughs> listening right. to just beats. Slamming on the camera. Yeah, right. right. Like you would have to practice. So right, right. same thing with writing. Well, so jumping a little bit back to, to your, something you'd said, and maybe you've already answered this as well, but you know, you've been talking about how when you, if you want to learn to be a writer, you've got to kind of try and be maybe more analytical in your approach to reading. But do you ever find that, that that's burdensome? Like, can you turn mm -hmm. that off? Can you just be a fan of writing or is oh, that yeah. not really possible? No, that's a great question too. Um, no, I think, and, and that's one of the things that, that you have to convince writing students of is that my my enjoyment of reading hasn't diminished since I became more analytical with it. Right, mm -hmm. it's it's more that I I will read it once and I will go out. You know that was amazing, and then I'll go. But now what what did they do? What did that writer do that makes me feel that way? Mm -hmm. um, and as I had I had this I really had this one instrumental professor in, in in school who who made me see the world differently, and he talked about this. Like he said, you 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 have to sort of understand the moves the writer is making. And, and understand why it affects you the way it, it does. He was he was the hardest teacher I've ever had in my life, you know. But he made me see reading differently. He changed me as a reader. My writing still sucked. I was still I was still really behind um, what I wanted to do. But he made me become a better reader. Mm. And, and so if I could give like as a teacher, if I could teach that to my writing students, like we'll be a better reader. And again, it's it's sort of judgmental. I don't mean better. It's not better or worse. Sure. It's 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 to help yourself learn what the writer's doing so that you can take some of that, steal some of that and, and you know, and apply it to your own writing. Um and so I but no, I just read a book. I read an incredible book um like two weeks ago. I couldn't put it down. So I was just, I was just a fan. It was this you know, incredible book. Yeah. But now I'm like, well, the next time I read, I want to see what he did. I want to, I want to unpack what this guy did. I want to, I want okay. to take it apart for myself. But the first read through, it was just like this. I was up all night. I just couldn't put it down. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and what happens, I'm sure this happens with anyone in any skill set. You know, the more you do it, you start to see little things, but you're not like, I'm not taking notes and I'm just reading it, you know, but I'm aware yeah. of what that writer is doing a little bit more than I was maybe 10 years ago. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's fair. That, that, that make that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I thought of it because in talking with, I'm just, apparently the show is half about crab. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, he did um, that on purpose. I think that was, he, <laughs> he just wanted he's to a very vain man. Yeah, he is a very um, man. He's not at all. No, he's not. <laughs> um, but, um, but but he was talking about in reading a recent you know series that that it it, it was kind of inspiring him to you know because when he started his writing career or, or whatever journey he he wanted to write novels mm -hmm. you know, he wanted to write fantasy novels mm -hmm. and then he kind of landed in poetry and that was a world that he had never even really uncovered at all and so then that became his passion and that's what he ended up pursuing for his degree. But I think there's always still a little bit of like wants to go back to why he originally sure. started, you know, sure. and not that he would abandon poetry or something. But but anyway, and so he was talking about how reading this this fantasy series was kind of like reinvigorating his desires to write to write novels like that again, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but because he was talking about kind of what you are, where it's like he is a fan and he does enjoy it, but he also is catching things where. And it's not to put down the other author of the other book, but just like, oh, I see how I think maybe 
I could do something like that and maybe put a different spin on it. Mm -hmm. And and I don't even mean content wise. I mean, just like style or, or technique of right. writing, you know? Right. Right. Uh, and I just thought that was super interesting because I, <laughs> I don't have that experience at all when I read. <laughs> so this, 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 this has become really important to me in the last, you know, more and more as I, as I do this more, it becomes more important because the idea of form versus content. Mm. And when you see, when you hear like discussions on books, like, and I, I had to kind of readjust my thinking because I've, you know, had a few events and I've had to think about this. Like most readers want content. Why did your character do this? What is your character? Like, like it's, 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 it's as if this was real and they want to understand why these things happen. That's content. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's actually quite enjoyable to read for content. But the writer and, and the poet and, you know, the, they're, they're chasing form. And form, mm. is what, form is what the reader, the average reader just doesn't see because they're used to it. They're kind of intuitively, you know, they understand how a book is supposed to look. But they don't realize that's actually a highly technical thing that writers have to somehow figure out what the form of a book is, the form of a poem is, the shape of it is. And that, for me, was incredibly liberating and incredibly um, uh, you know, illuminating. Like, oh, there's a there's a thing here. Like, the writers aren't just this isn't just falling. Like I said, this isn't just falling out of the sky. Like, they're actually shaping and crafting this thing. Um, yeah, that form, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that makes a, that makes a ton of sense. And I think you're absolutely right that you, you, as the, you know, again, as the layman or whatever, you wouldn't see that because you're, you don't understand if someone could explain it to you like a teacher, right. Yeah, then you, sure. <laughs> then you sure. can maybe begin to sure. see it, but you just don't even know that you can look for it. So no. you don't. Um, and you don't have to, you know, the reader, the average reader doesn't have to, but that's where it becomes, um, there's a tension there. I mean, there's a tension there when someone challenges you on a on a content question and you're literally going, I wasn't thinking about the content of this. I was thinking about the form, the shape of this. That's not what I was processing, you know. And, right. Um, I'm, I'm working on that. Yeah, no, I, I can I can see where it, it's uh, it's something to negotiate, <laughs> we'll say. <laughs> right. Uh, well, and, and so, I mean, I don't know if either of these books will be familiar to you. So I'll, I, I think I can make the point, even if they're not, though. But so there's a, a, a fantasy series that's incredibly popular called The Wheel of Time. Uh, it's written by a guy named Robert Jordan, who eventually passed away before the series was done. And then it was finished by another guy. But but either way, I mean, it's like a 12 book series or something. Mm -hmm. It's enormous. Mm -hmm. So the way I describe it is that he has really, really cool meta ideas and when i say cool i i mean that purely as a fan of <laughs> fantasy books sure. so like at the end of the first book two characters spoiler alert two characters <laughs> like fight in the sky mm -hmm. and it's like oh man like that's so such a cool such cool imagery and just this you know really grand thing or whatever but the page by page writing is uh, tedious it, it it describes an enormous amount of detail that's not really important uh, I mean, it, it'll go into like they walk into a room and it outlines the outfit of every person that's in the mm -hmm. room, but none of those people are characters. And it's not like the fact that, you know, that the lady had blue lace on her dress matters later is like a clue to it. It doesn't it never comes back up. So you just inundated with this level of detail mm -hmm. that for me was really, really hard to, to get through. And I didn't finish the series. I think mm -hmm. I read three or four books and I was like, I, I just can't. But everyone I know that's read it is like, oh, man you've got to push through that because the, again, the kind of meta or macro ideas of the book are really great. And there are some really great moments. 
And then you contrast that with, I read this other book called, and this was years and years ago, but called Wizard's First Rule hmm. by an author named Terry Goodkind. And I thought that that book was a page turner. Hmm. Like I was super into it and I felt like the writing, for lack of a better way to describing it, was just really compelling. But the actual story was <laughs> disappointing. It, I mean, hmm. they're trying to find the sort of truth and... Hmm. I don't know. It just, the ideas just seemed really generic, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. And if anyone listening is a fan of either of those, I'm not trying to attack <laughs> what you like, but the point just being that it's this difference of like, one of them has these really cool kind of broader ideas, but doesn't really execute again on the, for me, at least the, the page turniness of it, <laughs> yeah. as much as a term yeah. that is. That's and the other one is like, I can just go through it, but it's not actually that satisfying in the end because it's, yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it absolutely does. And I, I think don't know how it, to describe it other than that. No, it's you're, clearly you're a thoughtful reader. Um, it's it's the challenge though is it like, and again, I'm I'm speaking this. My point of view is coming at it from like, and this may have nothing to do with any of your listeners, and that's okay. <laughs> you asked me to be here, so I'm going to give you what I can. Tell oh you. yeah, I, I um, don't care about any of them either. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I come at it from the point of view of you know, trying to understand what the writer's and the artist's intent was. So mm. in other words, if you look at someone like a, like a literary writer, like um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and he has all these incredible details, like this incredible, like this attention and, and the story just is kind of frozen for, you know, a hundred pages, nothing's happening. You know, it's just, it's just kind of just, it's just this little bit of movement in the story. And, you know, you compare that to someone who's telling him, like you said, a page turning novel, um, but there's a different intent there. And, and so the question is, what's the artist's intent? What's the writer's intent? Um, and as long as, as a writing student, you can see the intention, you can see what the writer's doing. Um, you're not trying to please every reader. You're trying to please, again, you're trying to please the form. You have an intention with the form and that's what you're after. And so I, that's a hard, at least for my writing students, um, it's a hard it's like a hard cliff to, you know, to get to the edge of because because we're just so convinced that we know what's going on because that's how we're trained to read. Right. But it's not how we're trained to write as writers. We have to get past that, you know. No, that's a really interesting point that you that you make. And I mean, I can relate it to myself with podcasting. I, you know, that obviously these shows are pretty open and free form and the topics are everywhere. Um and some people have come to me and said, oh, I, you know, I, I think it'd be great if you could do 20 minute episodes or mm -hmm. it'd be great if, if the content could be just a little more concise um, <laughs> and be more bullet pointing. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of shows that do that. So it's not that I think that that's an untenable you know, mm -hmm. idea or something. But to your point, and I've never used the language that you did because I didn't hadn't thought of it that way. But what I explained to them is exactly what you just said, where it's like, well, I'm not trying to make a, a show that literally every human is like yep that's my favorite show right i'm trying to make a show that like i like i'm a huge fan of the joe rogan podcast which is kind of similar yeah. <laughs> minus the celebrity credibility but <laughs> similar to what i'm doing and it's or like the bill simmons podcast is kind of like this as well it's like those are the forms that i'm kind of yeah, pursuing absolutely um and if and if someone if the form isn't for someone then that that's okay i mean that doesn't mean that i don't respect their opinion on podcasts or something, but it also doesn't mean that I'm going to completely redefine my show every time someone has a suggestion because 
I have this idea of the form that I'm trying to pursue. I think that's kind of what you're describing. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. When I looked, when, when Chris connected us and I, and I went to your podcast, I'm not, I'm, now it's my turn to be unsure how to say this. <laughs> I went to your podcast. I'm like, who is this guy? Like, you know, am I going to spend my time with it? And I watched one episode and I'm like, no, it's professional. It, there was something about it that made me feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, now I can't identify what that is. I can't sure. identify what the aspects of that are. Like, oh, no, this isn't this isn't just some, you know, someone, you know, just throwing this together. This is somebody who spent some time learning, learning the craft of podcasts. Um, now, I don't know what that is, but I trust that that's a form because I can I can feel it intuitively when I look right. one podcast. I can, I can hear it, honestly, in the way you speak and the way you ask questions like there's there's a form there. And, and, and what that is, is different for each medium that we deal in, you know, whether it's sure. planning or writing a novel or writing a podcast. Right. There are different mediums, and, and I think that's our media, maybe it's the plural, but that's what we're responding to, and, and uh, makes a difference. You know, I think it makes a difference. Yeah, well, that's very generous of you to say. Thank you. Um, it's, true. it's also true. It's also fundamentally true. I mean, it's not me yeah. so much trying to flatter you. I mean, how right, right. Pay me for this? What are we going to get on? <laughs> um, no, but <laughs> we got to cut that Sorry. out now. But, but, but I mean that, like, like, because you just don't know, you know, if someone's just throwing something together is different than someone who's paying attention and, and being mindful of what they're doing. It's, it's my, I think at the end, it's a kind of a cliche term, but it is a form of mindfulness is what makes any form work. It is, you know, I, I've, I've wrestled a lot with cliches in the last year. Uh, I've, I've been on this kind of personal journey of, um, I'll use the gross word self-help, uh, <laughs> the more appropriate term, personal development. Um, but anyway, when you read any of that stuff, I mean, the reason that people discount a lot of that material is because they're like, yeah, it's all just a bunch of cliches. Well, that's true. But that's because sometimes things are principles. Right. And that's just the truth. So right. there isn't it. I mean, you can say it in different ways, but in the end, that's just a truth. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is. And you, and you feel it. You recognize it. Like, I think if you're paying attention, you recognize someone else's truth and it becomes... Yeah. You know, I, I have this sort of line that runs around in my head is that passion is contagious. Mm. It doesn't matter what someone's passionate about. If they're really passionate about it, it becomes something interesting to the person who's observing it. And I think, um, and, 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 and at least for me, I was in school with other writers that were passionate about writing. It was contagious. Like they were in what they were into, you know, what they were really fundamentally into was form and structure and, and you know, and, and these sort of devices that we use. They weren't talking about your great ideas, you know, everyone's creative. Everyone, you said this a little while ago, I'll come back to it. Everyone does have a novel in them. There's, there's no question. My story's not that interesting, but but the question is, are you willing to mine the form and the structure to get that story told, to be palatable to a reader that's, that's gonna read the book or read the story? You know? Yeah, well, and I think that, um, I, I, you know, and this is like maybe more closely related to poetry, but maybe not. I mean, maybe it's really just all writing, but, when Crabtree kind of showed me, you know, at least a process he used for, for writing poems, it would, it was like, well, I've got, I've got an idea that I want to write about. And then I pick a form and now I try and plug that idea into the form. Mm -hmm. But by going through that process, it forces you to change the language, yeah. right? Cause it doesn't fit into the form right away. Right. But then when you go through that process of changing the language, it ends up also expanding the idea, even though that wasn't why you were changing the oh, language. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's absolutely you know? right. Yeah, you've got it. Absolutely. 
Yeah. It, it changes as, as you write, as you, as you process it changes. It's interesting when it comes to um, creative endeavors, though, because people, you know, if, if you need to um, to produce some, like build build a house, and that's obviously a really complicated thing, but what build a doghouse right. <laughs> easier? Right. Like you, you know, it's a pretty clear path to how you'll make that. And if you needed to build the doghouse faster, you could hire more people to to mm-hmm. contribute and get it done quicker. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to problems that are, need to be solved creatively, like how do I tell this story or how do I convey this idea that I think is important? Um, it's not it's not that cut and dry. Right. And and I think that a lot of people, as we've talked about already, think it's like a, an inspiration thing or something. And certainly, you know, I think that when you have those moments um, in creativity, it, it, it certainly can feel exciting, like an inspiration moment. But it it's born out of this this repetition and this consistency and this diligence yeah. Yeah. that that really um, yeah kind of kind of pulls it out. And unfortunately, there's not really a, a predetermined. I mean, you know, if you do it for an hour, maybe you get something. Maybe, maybe you have to do it for thirty hours and you don't get anything still. But that doesn't mean that it's that you're not capable or the process is flawed or you know what I mean. Like it's yeah no. Just, I mean, I have, I have these. I have all these quotes in my phone about failure and, and how, you know, writers and poets are, have to be okay with failing a lot. We have to fail a lot. You know, mm-hmm. there's one quote by this writer, Yvonne Bolland. I'm not sure I say her name, but she's an Irish poet. And she says, um, let, let, you know, you have your, your success rate or your failure rate has to vastly outseed your success rate. You have to fail and fail and fail and fail and fail because that's what's teaching you, you know, this isn't working. This isn't working. This isn't working. Um, and it's, it's, it's an exploration. There's a wonderful book. I'm going to plug one book, plug one book. It's not my own. Okay. Um, it's a book. If anyone's interested in writing or just creativity or just any, I mean, it's just an incredibly generous book. It's a book by a guy named Peter Turchi, T-U-R-C-H-I. And it's called Maps of the Imagination. Hmm. And it's just extended. It's a whole book. It's like, you know, 250 page book um, where the allegory is cartography and, and the subject is writing. And he says, you know, writers are map makers and the creative process is you're going out and you're out, in the, you're out exploring an unknown territory. Hmm. And, and, and what you do is you come back and you write the product, the story, the poem, the book, whatever. And then the reader can pick up the map, which is the product that you've, this is not to be sort of 
you know, consumerist with this, but like you make a map and then the reader can yeah. go on the, on the vicarious journey that you've already gone on in your creative ex exploration. And I think that was a really powerful image for me is that, you, you know, it's messy. It's not easy. It's not, there is no outcome. There is no path. There's no, there's right. no doghouse blueprint to get to the end. Mm -hmm. You make a, you make a, can I swear on this podcast? Oh, absolutely. You make a shit ton of mistakes. Like you just, you make so many mistakes, but the mistakes are helping you kind of clear the path to what you're trying to, you know, whatever the, whatever the end result is, whatever the end of the story Right. Is. So to, and welcome to the walk show. We, we basically, I create a, 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 a central hub wheel of ideas. And then I just have spokes. I, and I just bounce yeah, around. I really so. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and this is something that I don't know. I think it kind of ties into, to, to our conversation that we were talking about, but it's a question that I wanted to ask you either way. <laughs> and that is, you know, when I was a kid, um, me and, and my friends, including Crabtree, the esteemed writer, used to harass our English teachers about, well, how do you know what the author meant when yeah. they wrote that? Because they would always tell us about yeah. these themes or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, you don't know, you didn't talk to them. But, but something I've kind of come to realize as I've gotten older is that I don't know if it really matters if you talk to the author and not that the author's intent doesn't matter, but past a point, you're not going to have access to them to find out. So unless they write in the forward or something right. that just says, this is what I meant right. with the next 300 pages. Right. Um, there's some element of like the writing is going to contain ideas and themes of the time and yeah. the culture that that person is from, whether they explicitly meant to do that or not. Absolutely. It's, yeah. I think that's so the, to go back to circle back to what this teacher yeah. I had at school said, he talked about the writer's job is to take the reader's head and sort of turn it. Look here, mm -hmm. look here, look here, look here, look here. And like he, he, he has this great metaphor. It's like you're standing behind the reader and you're just kind of moving their head where you want them to look. Mm. But what they see and how they interpret the meaning of a story is up to the reader, right? There's no way, right. to, there's no way to sort of, um, to understand what any particular reader is going to get. I have already discovered this in my own writing. Like people will say things that you didn't intend at all. Um, <laughs> right. The goal is to be as clear as you can about what you're trying to say. So the reader has at least has a decent shot of, of, of figuring out. But what I find again, to go back to my experience as a teacher, what I find mm -hmm. as a writing teacher is that the first thing writers want to do in a workshop is they want to interpret what, what the writer meant. Cause that's how we're taught to read. Yeah. So there's this there's this tension there between interpreting and reading. And so what this I'm just going to give the guy's name. His name was Douglas Glover. He was my teacher in grad school. He said, "Stop expecting people to interpret you. Just make them read you." Mm. In, in, in other words, put it in front of the reader. Let the reader read it. They're going to interpret it any way they want. But your job is to make it clear what they're reading. Like to be as clear as you can about what they're seeing. So right. you know. Um, you think of an example like, I mean, because there's been a lot in the news about, about Black Lives Matter and about racism, right? Mm -hmm. um, the reason I became a writer, this is, I'm not trying to pull into this political time at all. Oh, no. The reason I became a writer is because of Toni Morrison's Nobel speech when she won the Nobel Prize in 1993. And I was in a class and this professor read some of the speech and I'm like, oh my God, I want to do that. Mm. Toni Morrison is a black writer with, you know, this incredible, just this incredible, um, breadth of, 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 of experience and in, in, in stories. And she's just an incredible person. Um, 
but she wasn't speaking to me as a white writer. She was just a, a woman who wrote, you know, and for her, right. what, what touched me was it's writing. It's about, I'm going to, I'm going to show you what it's like to become a writer and mm. inspire me in a deep way. Does that mean that I'm misinterpreting her? I don't think so. I think I'm just interpreting what she said to me, but it may mean something very different to someone today, you know, with where we're at, maybe a very different thing to them. But for me, somehow 30 years ago, it was, it was like, it was like she spoke directly to my soul. And mm-hmm. so can't predict the outcome, but she was so clear and she was so precise and she was so powerful that she affected something in me as a, as a young white middle-class kid, young man, let's say, right. I want that. I want to know its power. And like, so, but it was because she was so good at what she did that she could speak to someone across huge differences of, yeah no that makes a lot of sense um i'm a i'm a huge fan of the band tool Mm. um and their lyrics are eh, i like them a lot but they're definitely very vague um (laughs) and people which i mean a lot of song lyrics are right and 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 people can pull a lot of meanings out of them um and I've seen the 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 vocalist and the the lyric writer Maynard is his name. Um, people ask you know asking him like, oh, does this song mean this or does this song mean that? And he says kind of what you just did, where he's like, I, I'm not gonna, I'm, I can't tell you what it means. Right. Like I know what it meant when I wrote it, but if it meant something else to you when you heard it, then that's what it means right, right. to you, right? right. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, that's exactly it. The, it's gone. It's out the door. Um, all you can do, you know, again, it's a great example with music. Like all you can do is make it as clear, make it, the music as precise, make the music mm-hmm. as, you know, as, as, I don't know, I don't have the right terms for it, but like the, as technically um, sound as it needs to be, but mm-hmm. then it's gone and it's out, it's out, out the door. So. Yeah. Well, and you know, it's, it's also, you know, kind of like we were speaking to earlier, not everything has to be for everyone. Nope. Right. So, right. You know, I, I know that there's like uh, like there's a band called Dream Theater that's like math rock. Like they use really complicated math mm. stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How smart I am. Um, yeah, to, to write their songs. Well, if you're into music in that way and understand those timing right. signatures, right. then that's all really compelling. Right. But for me, who doesn't who can't even distinguish when it's the guitar and when it's the bass. Yeah, right. I, I don't know, man. Like, do, is it listenable? You know, yeah, or, or like jazz. Like, I, I, I've heard, I've heard people who understand music really love jazz. Mm. I am not. I, I don't dislike jazz, but I don't get it. It's, it's I'm with you. My head, you know. I. I, I um. So how do you? How do you? This. This. Maybe someday I'll understand. I'll appreciate it more. I'll understand it more. But I don't. It, it goes over my head. Yeah. But I sense there's something real to it. I just don't know what it is. Right, right. Yeah, just because it's not it's not something that resonates with you doesn't mean it's invalid. Right, right. No, absolutely, for sure. I, yeah, I just I love the themes um, that that you've hit on so far. I mean, you talked about the the writing process being a very messy one, um, and one that doesn't necessarily have um, a clearly defined path. I mean, there's a process, but what path ultimately it all takes is kind of unknown until you get out there and explore, right, to make the map. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also talking about, uh, about failure and uh, obviously it applies a lot to writing. Um, cause you're going to, I mean, there, there's so many 
different flavors of, of failing when writing. You fail yourself when you write something and it's not what you wanted, but then you also potentially, you know, try and publish something or submit something and someone else tells you no, even though you thought, you know what I mean? So there's, yeah. but I think that that applies to life in general, you know, it's, sure. um, you, 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 I'm sure you think of this as a writer, but there, there's like, I, I just, I wish I knew who it is that makes up words so that we could get some more <laughs> sometimes, you know, because like, like right. to fail is to, to not succeed, but that's only in the micro sense. Like in the macro sense, as long as you keep trying, then right. you're not actually right. failing. Now you're proceed progressing, which is the opposite right. of failing. Right. Failing only really comes through quitting, but it's confusing to talk about because we, we just don't have, we need another word besides failing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a binary word. Absolutely, it's a binary word. Absolutely, it is. And it's, uh, I have this other quote that I carry around with me from a Canadian writer who I love named Stephen Hyten. And he says, let failure be your workshop. Mm, yep. Like you, you've got to make, you've got to make moves that are beyond you and, and screw them up and make mistakes and, you know, and, 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 uh, and, and be okay with it. It was hard for me. I mean, I, you know, I, I told you in the beginning, I was, I was a military guy. I, I came out of a, a flying environment. There was no room for failure. Right. Everything was every movement was judged. So failure wasn't really, failure is not an option, but it was like, it wasn't an option. And so to, for someone to say to me, you know, at some point in a formative stage of my writing, like go fail, go screw it all up and make, you know, and, 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 and come back, like you said, and come back and do it again and do it again. Um, it, that's helpful. It was liberating in a lot of ways that you, you, I, I, I've kept, not all, I've kept most of my rejection letters from short stories, magazines I've submitted to. And people like some of my young writers will talk about, Oh, I got rejected. I'm like, you want to compare rejections? I, I got, I got a whole, I, I literally count every time I go back and count them just so I have a number I can throw at them and be like, okay. Um, but that's normal. Like that's just what you know. I mean, that's that's what that's what happens. It's it's uh, it's growth. That's how we yeah, grow. Yeah, this is so unrelated, and, and you'll just have to forgive me. But it, I think it's amusing, so I'm going to share this story. It's slightly related to rejection, but in, not in nearly as earnest of a way as what you're describing. I used I'm to work at this uh, call center, and um, I mean, I you know bottom of the barrel position. But I had access to the company's intranet website, of course, where they have job postings. And any time an executive position became available, which I was woefully underqualified for in every way other than I was alive um, and worked there, I guess. Uh, but anyway, I would apply for them. And and if you apply, they have to give you a rejection letter. So <laughs> my manager comes to me one day after he's handed me one of these like, for the sixth or seventh time or whatever it is. And he's like, what is, what is this? What's going on? And so I just told him, I was like, I just apply for it. Cause I think it's funny that they have to look at my resume each time, even if they look at it for two seconds right. and then deny it. It's just a little right. joke for myself. And he was like, yeah, that's would you be comfortable with me reading these in our team meetings going forward? And I was like, I would love that. I would absolutely love that. Oh, wow. So wow. <laughs> I hate to tell you this. That's a, that's an essay. You could literally sit down and write an essay about that. It would be amazing. That's an amazing essay. I love I'll have that. to talk to, to so Tree good. and see if he can help me. Yeah, see if he can help me with that. That's amazing. That'd be a great essay, right? But yeah, so I I too revel in rejection letters. Is my my thought. Um, <laughs> but again, well, so so I, I, I you know these sort of interesting sort of synapse synaptical yeah. connections will form. I remember one time years ago, I heard, 
I was, I was a, I'm not gonna say I wasn't a Howard Stern fan. I was kind of a quasi Howard Stern fan because I used to drive mm-hmm. a lot and I lived in DC. And he was pretty popular before he went to Sirius mm-hmm. Radio. And, and you know, I didn't always love the crassness of his humor, but I, I love the sort of arrogance. Like he was just so willing to put it <laughs> right. out there, right? Now, I'm a pretty modest guy. I'm not one of those people. But I heard an interview with him once, and he said, "They said, how did you get so successful?" And he said. He said, when I started in radio, he said, I did not say no to anything. He said, I said yes to everything. It didn't matter what it was. If someone said, go get the coffee, I said yes. If someone said, go do that, I said yes to everything. And it was this little moment, like this little vulnerable window into his mm-hmm. soul. Like He really cared about what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Now, where he went with that is his own business, and that's not for me to judge. But he, he was the most successful you know, radio personality, yeah. certainly in the 90s. But he's like, I did anything anyone asked me to do all the time. I didn't, I I didn't judge. I just did it. I just said yes to everything. And it became kind of like my mantra as a, as a middle-aged writing student. Like if someone says, will you do this? I said, sure, I'll do it. Because what do I know? How do I know what's going to impact, you know, bring me as, as, as someone who wants to do this for a living. And, um, and you know, those, those messages come from weird places. They come from places that don't always make sense. I, I think you're absolutely right. And it's something, so, you know, I used to read, I used to not read at all. And then I read some, some fiction, like fantasy books once in a while. And then I stumbled into Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you're familiar with him at all. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And I, I love <laughs> Malcolm Gladwell. And so I, I read all of his books and then I started reading this guy named Michael Lewis, who's another, he's the guy who wrote like the yeah. big short Moneyball, and the book versions of yeah. books. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Another guy that I think is just fascinating, but they're all nonfiction, right? They're kind of uh, social commentary yeah. kind of things. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, and so I had kind of, I had convinced myself that like, Oh, this is what I like. I don't, I'm not interested in reading fiction anymore because I like learning these truths sure. of the world or whatever. Sure. Yeah. Well, then fast forward, I read fast forward a few years and I end up reading uh, that Mistborn trilogy that I talked about earlier. That's yeah. that fantasy series. And I am not a religious person. Right. And have, to be frank, admittedly, mm, at least had a condescending view of religion for a long mm-hmm. time. And that's probably me being nice to myself to say it that way. But um but it was actually through reading this fantasy story that has no basis in reality at all. But there are some really, really powerful themes and ideas in that about not just religion as like the, the institution of religion, but really, really it's just about the power of, of belief and of faith and how powerful um, true faith can be because in the face of great adversity, one can overcome something that on paper like you're not gonna you're not gonna make it out and you do because but it's really this faith that carries you through and it was like it was just like this light bulb went off now to be clear i haven't gone and devoted myself to to one of the (laughs) religions or something but it made me it completely shifted the way that i looked at other people's religions and and it kind of i wouldn't want to use the word jealous because it's not there's no anger or anything associated with it but it, it made me realize like I think I need to, to be pursuing this more to find whatever I can have faith in because it's a really powerful part of being a person that I'm just not tapping yeah. into at all. And I think, and again, I mean, that's my own personal take and whatever, but 
there was a lot of resonance from that. And that, that didn't come from Malcolm Gladwell. You know what I mean? That didn't come from a, an academic perspective. It was from this fiction book. So anyway, all of that was just to say, I think you're absolutely right that it can come from sources that you would not expect. Um, well, yeah, and I think, for, like, for me, my personal story that connects, mm-hmm. I think, really closely with that is that I was raised religious. I was Catholic as a kid. I grew up in New England. I was kind of, you know, everyone in New England was either Catholic or Jewish. There wasn't a lot of room for anybody else. Um, I was an altar boy. I really, you know, I had I have no horror stories. It was all good. <laughs> um, and I lost my faith. I lost that, you know, sense of religion and purpose. Um, I'm still not religious. My kids aren't religious. Um, but when I arrived with real writers, I'll use the W word in this context. When I arrived around, among people who were very passionate about art and about writing, it felt like I was stepping back into church. It felt like I was mm. stepping back into a form church. And, and, and the difference was, the difference was they weren't driving me towards one answer. It wasn't driving, it wasn't driving me towards, you know, one unified answer. This is the answer. This is, it was, no, there's many answers. Keep exploring. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, but it did really in a fundamental way, it really made me think about going back to church, not because I needed to connect with an answer, but because I wanted to connect with the sacred because I, because the meaning mm-hmm. of it, like, you know, when I was in Rome once, this was years ago, we were living in, 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 in Europe and I was, I was in Rome and I was not, I, I am not religious, but I was in, I went to St. Peter's and I went to, you know, the Vatican and. I'm like I went to church and I took communion because I'm like this is my this is my heritage. Mm. It's not my faith, but I believe it wasn't a religious moment for me. It was a cultural mm. moment. It was an experience, you know, two thousand years of, of Catholicism, which of which I was brought out of. Mm-hmm. I'm like I, I earned that. I, I I get to have that experience, but it didn't. I didn't come out of it believing. I came out of it just feeling a sense of of humanity, yeah. a sense of who we are, to make sense of the world and why we're here, and all that stuff. So. Yeah, I think that, I mean, you know, I think that it's easy um, for, I think it's it's easy in the modern world, especially with all of the information that we have access to, to um, paint religion with a pretty broad brush of negativity, because there's a lot of examples for a long time that you can point to. Um, but, but, but two things, I guess. One, I think that that's true, or I shouldn't even say that is true. That can be true when you're looking at it more as like an institutional kind of thing. Right. But I think that on an individual level, it's generally a pretty powerful, good thing, you know? No, I think you're, I think you're really into something interesting because I think that, that, you know, the world I now inhabit with writers and artistic people is, you know, very anti dogma, anti religion, Mm -hmm. but yet we're all after the sacred. We're all after it's for all we're after meaning. We're after trying to make sense, you know? Um, and so, I mean, if we could get crabgy, we should have reached a zone, zoomed in for the last few minutes. But like, poets, this is what they fucking live for. This is this is their bread and butter. Like, they're not avoiding these questions. They're just trying to have different answers. They're just, they're just trying to make sense of through language and through stories and through imagery, right. you know, what this is all about. And, and we don't know, but we're, we're curious about it. Infinitely curious. Well, about it. just like poetry, I mean, that's another another thing that I heard a, an ever evolutionary uh, biologist say one time um, that just from a purely evolutionary kind of perspective things that survive over especially a 2000 year period are just the things that had value you know what I mean like if it doesn't 
if it doesn't mean anything it doesn't survive because there's not enough room for meaningless things ultimately right especially that span so say what you will but clearly there is some value because otherwise it doesn't make it you know absolutely So to go back to writing, not to not to have some long <laughs> conversation about religion, but you did tell me we were going to wander, so I'm glad yeah, we, we did. We this did. Was good. Um, that was good. So, do you think it's important? Do you think that everyone should be a, a writer? And I don't mean capital W writer, like everyone should try and be a, a published author. But do you think that there is value for every person in in engaging in some form of writing, whether that be journaling or free writing or even poetry, whatever they want to try? But yeah, the cynic in me says no. The 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 the, the hopeful person in me says mm. yes. This, this teacher I had in grad school said, um, uh, he said writing is a form of it, it's, it's a technology. Mm. So when we learn how to write, we what we're doing is we're, we were holding on to our stories, and that once we write them down, they become permanent. They become they become an artifact. They become something we can pass down. Um, at some point, years and years and years ago, when I was first starting to try and write. I remember thinking, like, what would I give to have my the grandparents of, of the journals of my grandparents, mm. the journals of my great grandparents? Like, what would I give just to have that? If, it, if no one else saw it but me, how valuable would it be just to have those journals? And I don't have right. my father doesn't write, my mother, like, they, I don't have that access. To yeah. That. Wow, how powerful would it be just to go and sit and read through that? You know, photographs do it, and social media contains stuff. But, but if you really sit down and write, and you, you put your inner thoughts, on the page that, that's a pretty powerful gift to give someone mm-hmm. down the road and I, I think there is a value in that um i think the fantasy of publishing and you know fame and like that's all bullshit but i think in terms of writing itself it's it is it's an incredible it's it's it's, it's the one way to live beyond yourself is to, is to have something written down and, and to give it back to because ultimately writing is not about you it's about giving it to someone mm. else and if you can see that, if you can see I'm not writing for me, there's a little bit of, there's always a little bit of ego involved. There's always a little bit like I want, sure. you know, but if, if you start to see like, I'm not doing it for me, I'm doing it for something else. Then you kind of liberate yourself from the process of writing. That's kind of esoteric, but it's, it's how I, I started to see it. Like you're, you're, you're not doing it for you. You're doing it for some other purpose. Mm. And, and, and again, back to meaning structure, like, why am I doing this? Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I definitely have found, I mean, everything that I've read about, um, well, that's not fair. 
not like I'm some expert on, on mental health or something, but, but in the things that I've read on, um, you know, dealing with depression, dealing with anxiety, um, just trying to make yourself feel better. Like, man, being able to get the thoughts out written down is so powerful because in my own experience, what I found, and this, I guess, probably relates more to journaling than anything else. But, but what I found is that it can be easy in your head to have a thought and then just have that thought just go into a spin cycle. Right. And it's just over and over and over. And it's just, and that can, for me at least create a lot of anxiety because you feel kind of trapped. But when you write, it's almost like it forces your mind. I just say me, it forces my mind to go to the next thing. Right. Like, if I right. write down a sentence, it's like, well, I'm not going to be Bart Simpson and just write this out a hundred times, right. you know? So it kind of makes the mind go, okay, well, what would come next? And what would come next? And so I, I yeah. just feel like it's a really powerful tool um, that could be used in that way even, you know? I agree completely. It, it makes you think about what, it makes you think about your own intro. I, I, I tell my writing students a lot, like it's, an, it's a translation process. You're trying to translate your inner world for someone. For the key is it's for someone else. Right. Yeah, it's a hypothetical someone else. It's you're trying to. This is how I see the world, and what I think. You know, I want you to understand what I think and why I think this way. And that's a pretty significant thing to do. Yeah, I think it's a. It, you know, it, here here it is again. This is a theme that I keep coming back to over and over again, just in life. And it's it's this idea of holding two things that are seemingly diametrically opposed at the same time. Yeah. And so like with, with what you're talking about, it's like, well, when you make art, the idealistic version of that is you're only you're creating it for yourself, right? Like you don't care what anyone else right. thinks. You're not a sellout, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, is that I'll, I don't know if any art is not created for consumption. Right. Right. Now, I'm not advocating that everyone, no offense to Nickelback fans, but should be like a Nickelback or something, right? But there's a balance where it's like you do have to hold right. that like, yeah, you are making it for someone else and don't act like you're not. But right. you also kind of what we were talking about, like the dedication to form instead of content, like you also have to to balance that with you are making what you wanted to express, not what you thought someone else right. might like. I think there's a quote. I think it's by Rumi. Contradiction is the lever of transcendence. Oh, no, we, we, we have to hold these two opposing thoughts, right? This is so much of what we're struggling with today, I think, in, 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 the, in, the, in the country mm-hmm. and in the world. We can have two opposing thoughts, right? Let's just hold them together and let, let's, let, let's trust that we can exist. Those two contradicting thoughts can exist and we can make sense of it. Um, and, and we just don't, we want everything to be so clear and so, so cut and dry. And then just, just, it's just not. Yeah, well, it's because if things are binary, they're easy. Right. Cause you have to pick right. one and then you're sure. like, cool, I'm done with that thought on to the next. Yep. And when next, things yeah. are nuanced and have a lot of a spectrum of gray space, it, it ends up taking a lot of your gray space to <laughs> figure it out. Yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> um, it does. Which is also, you know, I'm going to watch me tie this. Hey, nice. I'm getting paid. This is fun. It's also why, you know, sitting here having an hour long conversation with you is different than having a 10 second interview soundbite kind of mm-hmm. thing. Because if someone's going to watch this whole thing and sort of see, you know, I, I didn't speak to you before this. We, we just yeah. met here and I thought we had a really nice conversation, but it's because we were kind of open to each other's thoughts and, and, and we, we kind of bounced off of each mm-hmm. other. But it takes an hour to get there. It takes an hour to get into those spaces. It doesn't just happen in a sound bite in All 10 right. seconds, you know, simple answers. And so, you know, how do we make time for that? How do we, how do we create that space for, for, um, 
for nuance, for for thinking, for understanding. It's, it's tough to do. It is, yeah. I mean, I, I this is a thought I've shared before on the show, but I, it's it's kind of the idea of you know, I, I for a long time was someone who believed that um, to confront something was to do the hard work. It was to, that was the heavy lifting, right? So if someone if there's an injustice and I like if someone's racist and I hate that, and so then I call them out for being racist. That's it. Like I did it. I I'm I'm a champion of yeah. of good or something, right? Right. right. And right. and the truth is is that the real work is what we're talking about, which is you do still have to confront it. So it's not to say that it doesn't deserve to be confronted. Yeah. It does. But and not to be overly dark or, or morbid or something, but unless you're literally going to like <laughs> I don't even want to say whatever. Unless you're going to get rid of everyone who thinks differently than you, which you're not. Um you also have to be empathetic. Like you also have to assume that that person is not coming with the worst of motives, because if you do, the confronting will never get anywhere because it'll just pitch and hold them further into their position. But if you can confront with some empathy, now maybe you can bridge that gap, but holding empathy for someone who's racist is this. Yeah, it's really tough. But again, unless you, unless you can, get rid of those people, which I can't, right? Then, and I'm, again, I'm not advocating or suggesting would be healthy in any way, but I just mean literally like they're still going to exist. Right. So you got to find another way. And that's the hard work, but man, contradiction is the lever of transcendence. That's a, that's a good one. If I, I don't get tattoos, but if I did, I'd consider that. Um, (laughs) That's a good one. So let's, let's, I've taken an hour of your time. Just, just kind of, well, that's great. It flew by. It really did. This was super fun. I had no idea what to expect. So it's so great. Well, you're a professional. Let's talk about The Falling Woman, just just briefly at least. Um, okay. So The Falling Woman came out. We talked about it a little bit at the very beginning, but if you don't mind, what is what is the, the, the story about at a high level? Um, at a high level, it's about a woman who falls out of an airplane and survives. Um and like you, you said in the you know the opening, it's not it's not fantasy, it's not it's not speculative fiction. This has actually happened, at least as far as I can tell, five oh, times. Oh wow! Uh, people have fallen out of airplanes and survived. Um, happened three times in World War II. You know, in, in combat, planes were shot down, and, and people fell out of planes and survived from like twenty, thirty thousand feet. It happened twice in nineteen seventies. One woman wrote a book about it. Uh, another woman was a, a flight attendant in Yugoslavia. Um, there's no explanation that doesn't make any sense. No one knows why or how they survive. Huh. Well, um, so then I was completely I saw, wrong about it being, fa- that's why I said fantastical. Cause I knew that part of it, but it sounds like that's not. It's the hardest part of marketing this book for me was trying to convince, you know, agents and editors that this could actually happen. Um, I don't know why I never understood. I never came to a conclusion. Um, I heard, I heard this term, uh, on an NPR show once called stochasticity. And, 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 and so it's a really small part of the book, but it's a big part of how I saw the book, which is that if you imagine a, go- a guy or a woman sitting on a golf tee and hitting a ball and you took a bet on which blade of grass the golf ball would land on in the fairway, you know, the odds are like six trillion to one, you would get the right blade of grass, yeah. but it was going to land on one blade of grass regardless of what you bet on. Right. You know? And so it, it's, it's, it's looking back in reverse, like, no, of course, the odds are impossible that someone's going to survive this fall. But when it happens, 
It's because some some unexplainable thing, you know, it isn't a miracle. It's not supernatural. It's just some weird combination of forces and factors came together. Um, so that was sort of the initial inspiration for the book. Um, how could this have happened? And then the second part of, the, of this for me was, you know, the last time I can find this happen was in the early 70s. And we weren't living in the same culture that we live in now. So I was like, what if a plane blew up now? Like, what if a plane like came apart in there now? And a person fell and survived. Yeah. Like, what would that be like? That the celebrity, the 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 hype, the the you know, would go like crazy, <laughs> and go nuts, right? And I said, and what if you had someone who didn't want to be found? And so right. the, the the story became about this woman who has this incredible thing happen to her, and really she wants to go the other way. She wants to go away from it. Um, and so she sort of just disappears, you know, and it's not really a spoiler to say that she survives it pretty early on, you know, she survived it. Um, she disappears and then this investigator is trying to prove that it's either a hoax or that this could have happened, um, but he doesn't understand why she disappeared. So essentially she's a reluctant hero uh, and then my investigator is looking to try and find her and bring her back to the world. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, that sounds, uh, after, you know, from, from reading the synopsis, it sounds very interesting. Uh, I'm definitely adding it to my my reading list. I've, uh, you know, talking about the benefits of reading, obviously, I'm not a, a writer, so I, I don't read it, read in the same way that you were. Except for the essay. You're yeah, gonna, you're gonna write that's that true. Essay. Now I will, so I can write the essay about my ridiculous right. corporate rejection letters. Right. Um, awesome. <laughs> Seriously. But I, 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 you know, as part of just my daily kind of self-maintenance routine, I, I try and read it, you know, for... Uh, at least some period of time each day. Um, and right now I'm reading a, 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 a fiction series actually. Um, but this is going to be the next book on my fiction list for sure. So I'm definitely excited uh, to check it out. It, well, I was trying to think of another book that I'd read that might be kind of similar, not in, in terms of the actual plot or anything, but just, I think you called it narrative fiction or literary fiction. I don't, I don't know what to call it anymore. I, Whatever. Yeah. My intention was literary. I don't know. They're calling it a thriller, but I don't see it as a thriller at all. I have no idea. Why yeah. I well, I, I, and again, what I mean is just simply like, it's, it's not based on a true story directly, but it's also very much grounded in the yeah. real world, whatever term. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely grounded. In the yeah. Real world. Yeah. Um, sure. I, I'm going to get the name wrong probably, but there's an author. Are you familiar with his name's like, Paul, I want to say it's Paulo Coelho. Is that a oh, Paul Coelho? Yeah, I think that's probably yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Um, and I read some book of his that is about a, that was about this like girl who goes over to Sweden and to become yeah, like a yeah, yeah. dancer or something and then ends up becoming a prostitute. But it was interesting because I don't think he's American. So like the American version of prostitution is like a very dark and like evil, like a lot of exploitation going on. But in that story, she's not not that angle of it like she's not being exploited yeah. and abused or something you know what i mean like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's more of a story of like self-discovery and um yeah kind of finding her well, I, think all, I think all good stories are trying all good stories are trying to make the reader look at themselves and their and, and their sense of the world and, and rediscover something so i think good stories doing that to kind of you know to, to take it back just briefly again to your you know discussion we were having about failing and 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 it being a messy process how long did it take you to write this book like how long and again i i don't mean an exact day count or something but is it a year is it five years is it you know how long i i probably started it you know i started it as a short story uh, in the the 2010s early okay. um 
after I finished grad school, I was trying to write this as a short, I'd sort of stumbled on this idea. I was trying to write as a short story. I kept writing it and writing it and writing it. It just didn't fit into the short story form. Mm. I was at a conference and I met with some agents and they were just kind of doing a little elevator pitch things. And, and they kept saying, do you have a novel? Do you have a novel? Like, I don't really have a novel, but I have this story that doesn't fit into this form. Mm. Um, and then I ended up getting an agent for a short story collection that hasn't been published yet. And the first thing she said to me was, do you have a novel? <laughs> so at some point I finally just said, all right, I'm going to make this a novel. Right. Um, I just gave myself some space to turn it into a longer form and eventually it, you know, uh, all told, I mean, beginning to end, it was 10 years. The real writing of it was probably three years of actually cranking it out. I just, I think it's super important and, and interesting to share that though, because again, you know, there, there's all these lofty ideas of, um, of, the, of the lightning bolt, right. and that's just not what it looks like. But that doesn't mean that it's not possible, right? Like, that was there's this Malcolm Gladwell book, Outliers. Uh, yeah, yeah, I love yeah. That. And I mean, that just shows it's like, oh, well, people think that I think it's Mozart he talks about it was like this genius because by 16 he'd composed what, right. but he's been composing since he was six. He's got 10 right. years, you know what I mean? Like, he didn't just right. wake up. Well, he talked about the Beatles in that yeah. book. He talked about how the Beatles were playing eight, 10 hour yes. sets in, for US bases in Germany. They were just playing and playing and playing and playing. But no one knew who the Beatles were. And then right. when they arrived, but they'd already had that 10,000 hours of practice. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, but yeah. Well, anything else that you'd like to share about the book? I don't I don't mean to, to not <laughs> expound upon that as much as you'd like. Um, I'm done talking about it. I'm over. It's in the rear okay. view mirror. I just want to go. So you're like Denzel Washington. You don't you don't go watch your old films. You're just on to the next. Oh, I never believed that. I never believed that was a thing. I thought that was all bullshit. I thought that was all like, oh, yeah, that's what you say to sound cool. <laughs> if I never read another page of this book again, I'd be perfectly happy. Well, you, I mean, you, <laughs> you spend a lot of time with it, right? It's not a lot of, too much time with it. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Way too long. I mean, and I will. I'll have to see it, but I, I some time. You just need some distance. Some distance, a little space. Yeah, little gap. Well, the book is called "The Falling Woman." Um, it is available on Amazon, certainly, and I, I'm sure if there is a bookstore in wherever you're listening from, your locality open, probably there, like Barnes and Noble, that sort of place. Is it available? Yeah, and you know what? What I'm trying to plug um, as much as I can is the small independent okay. bookstores, like the local bookstores, because. Um, they they really are struggling and, and you know amazon's gonna be okay in the pandemic sure. but like and so is barnes bubble but like um where do you live i actually don't know where I you live in springfield live. missouri yeah so like jen mervin and she's a cool bookstore called paginations and, and so like those kind of small bookstores really need support so if you could support a local independent bookstore that would that'd be doing more good than amazon i mean i'm nothing against no. amazon I, I love i love amazon they still sell books i thank god they do <laughs> um if, um, if you can support a, a local bookstore, that'd be more. more no, that's a that's a, a perfectly a perfectly legitimate I you know point. Um, and, and yeah, I, I was just trying to to make sure that we the people understood that this is available wherever they want to buy. Yeah, wherever you can right. find. Yeah, um, but yeah, supporting a local bookstore, especially in the the current conditions with the pandemic and everything, you know, makes a lot of sense. So, uh, an honorable request. Um, well, Rich Farrell, I really appreciate you stopping by today and joining the show. Um, I, I really appreciate your time and, and thank you so much for sharing your stories and your insights. Thanks. And, and then, so now the next question is when do you come down to River Pretty? Oh, so River Pretty. Right down the street. It's just down in Dot Mill at Tecumseh, Missouri. It's just two hours down the road from Springfield. Yeah, well, so. I, not being a writer, I was always excluded. You understand. 
No, it can be plenty of people come down and just hang out. So it's a great spot to hang out. I'm sure, Crabtree would be happy to have you down there. Yeah. Well, so the yeah. So just for anyone that doesn't know, the River Pretty is a a, a writer's retreat. Is that what you call it? Yep. Twice a year when we're not in pandemic mode, we don't know what's happening right, right. now. Uh, it's it's on the river on the on the North Fork of the White River. Listen to me, I'm from California. I know all this stuff. <laughs> It's a beautiful spot. It's an old restored water mill from the 1870s, um, and we have a three-day retreat workshop kind of event down there. Uh, we're supposed to go in October. I don't know for sure if we will because of the situation, but then we go. Usually October, April is our time frame. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Well, you 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 band together with me, and we'll we'll both we'll pressure Crabtree from multiple angles to take me with. You can have a. I guarantee you'd have a blast, and I guarantee you'd have a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it's. Girl, whether you write the essay yeah. or not, <laughs> well, I'd have to then, right? If nothing else, I'll have to. Yeah. Right, you would have to. Then. <laughs> All right, man. Well, uh, we Thanks. will wrap it up here. Super fun. I enjoyed this a lot. All right, folks. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Thank you so much again to Rich Farrell for stopping by and joining the show to, to talk not only about his book, but just about his own insights into writing and, and his process and, and, and all the stuff that we covered. It was just a, a real blast to talk to him. Uh, also, thank you, Misha Zarens, for providing the music for the show, as always. And of course, thank you, listener, for listening to the show today. I also invite you to check out my other podcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is about why gaming matters. It's co-hosted by me and Brett Lindley, who's been a guest on The Walk Show many times. Uh, Pick Up Your Sticks is long-form conversations about video games, so similar to what we do on The Walk Show here, uh, but all in the context of gaming. And we really try and talk about why gaming matters. So as opposed to just news and reviews, we try and dive into the emotional connection that we have with gaming and, and yeah, talk about why it's important to us. So if you like that kind of thing, I highly suggest that you check it out. Uh, Pick Up Your Sticks is available on all the platforms. Wherever you listen to The Walk Show, you should be able to listen to Pick Up Your Sticks as well. And thanks again. Stay up. Have a great week.